Welcome to Technology and the Mind, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of psychoanalytic ideas and our experiences with consumer technology. Each episode, we will interview a seasoned psychoanalyst, philosopher, or technologist about different aspects of the conscious and unconscious effects of how we use technologies on our minds, relationships, and society. Please welcome your host, Dr. Nicole Zapian, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst in training, and consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to the second season of Technology in the Mind, a podcast where we interview a guest each month about the intersection between technology and psychoanalytic ideas. Today, our guest is Stephen Cognetta. Stephen Cognetta is currently the CEO and co-founder of Exponent an online platform to support tech candidates to land new jobs, for which he received the Forbes 30 Under 30 Award. Stephen has previously worked as a Google product manager, specifically improving Google search features, supporting the launch of the Google Assistant, and Android wearable devices. Stephen also co-founded Hack Mental Health, the world's largest mental health hackathon, and a community-building event for innovating between the mental health community and the tech community. Stephen's work has been featured in The Verge, the Washington Post, Time, and more. Stevens, a graduate of the Stanford Graduate School of Business, prior to which he graduated with highest honors from Princeton's computer science program. Please join me in welcoming Stephen to discuss tech careers, his experiences, and the relationship between working in the tech sector and mental health. Welcome to the show. Hey, nice to be here. So, Stephen, you began your career at Google in product development, and then you founded Hack Mental Health. And then you founded Exponent most recently, winning an exceptional award for that company. Tell us a little bit about what you did in each of these roles and how each led to the next. Essentially, tell us the story of how your career unfolded and what were the pain points and the delight points all along the way. Yeah. And it's always funny talking about my career as where I sit now or where I sit most recently is at Exponent, where I help people with their careers, helping people navigate how to get to the next step and where to go in their career. I started my career working in big tech. Like a lot of my classmates from Ivy League school, we were really interested in working at some of the best tech companies at the time or some of the most well-known. And so Google was my dream company and I was able to get that role as a product manager. And I was working in tech and got to do a lot of interesting work on the Google search experience and the Android Wear experience. But it was always funny, like I had this strong craving to get to Google. And that was like my dream job and my dream career. And at the same time, I knew something was missing after maybe a year and a half there, where I was starting to feel a little bit like my learning curve had plateaued. But also like there was a little bit more or different kind of impact I wanted to have on the world. And so then I did a very bold decision, which was I, I bought a car and I drove around the country for two years, just going to different states and experiencing life in a different way. So I, I did a lot of woofing, which is working on a farm in exchange for room and board. And I was able to like dog sit and I stayed in like a few communities around the United States. It was all in the continental United States and sort of just challenging my notion of like ambition and success and that career paths don't have to be this linearly increasing thing your whole life. And so I say this in, in jest, but as all soul searching journeys around the US go, it ends up at business school. So I ended up going to... <laughs> that's, that's hilarious, actually. Which state yeah. was your favorite, first of all? So I'm only from coastal regions, so I, I uh, very liberal areas. And so I actually loved West Virginia. It surprised me a lot in terms of its natural beauty. It was just like a, such a beautiful state. And I 
naively like this California Bay Area child that I am, like I was like, oh yeah, West Virginia, all it is is just Trump country. And at the time, it was actually during when Trump had gotten elected and there was a lot of discord in the country. And so I remember entering some of those states feeling a little like nervous or unsure about how I would be received also as uh, coming from that liberal background. But I just loved West Virginia and I got to spend a lot of time in nature there. So it was really Mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a really interesting, I didn't know about that, that break between Google and hack mental health and so on. So, okay. (laughs) So you took a tour of the U S and you landed yourself back in business school and then what happened? Yeah. So, and yeah, funnily, I I don't mention the break on my resume or LinkedIn, which is kind of a sad thing about resumes and LinkedIn profiles. Like, you know, you can't highlight some of these things or it sometimes, you know, I certainly could, but it, it has a different effect sometimes. Mm-hmm. As a career coach, do you counsel people to put more personal things in their resumes, such as travel yeah. or divergences? Yeah. And it's funny how like my own career journey kind of maps into the overall feeling I have about career journeys, which is that people, I love my company exponent. Um, and we'll get to to me finding it in a second, but sometimes there's so much focus on getting to the next step in someone's career and needing it to be higher and bigger and needing to go according to some kind of predetermined plan. But there's a lot of stress and anxiety when it comes to career when I'm very fortunate in a lot of ways. Like I went to a great school and I got to work at Google. But taking two years off to do a road trip in the U.S. was definitely not theoretically productive for my career. But ironically, at that time was when I just started coaching people for interview prep, which was the very beginning of Exponent. And it was purely out of a lot of just I had a lot of time off. I was exploring things that I wanted to do. I was doing super random stuff like foraging for food in nature and taking classes on that. But then one of the things I was doing was exploring coaching because I, I always knew I had an interest in mental health and emotional work in general. And I had the skill of interviewing from my work at Google. And so I was doing that at the very end of that road trip. And so a lot of times these nonlinear paths can actually lead to something even greater. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So what happened next? Hack Mental Health. Tell us a little bit about that. So yeah, so one of the other projects that I was working on while, during that time and kind of this no man's land of figuring out what I wanted to do and, and driving around the country was, again, pursuing this interest in mental health work. And so I started Hack Mental Health. And it really started, honestly, as like a simple idea at a Facebook group chat where I was like, hey, I didn't want to do this hackathon. I thought there might be 20 people to attend. And it quickly ballooned into like this huge event. There's so much going on in tech. It seems so vibrant and so exciting, all the technologies that are being developed. But is there an interest in using and leveraging these applications for an area of interest that I had that was near and dear to my heart? I had previously volunteered at the suicide hotline in San Francisco and so had exposure to the mental health sector from that. And so I was curious, how can we get all these people sort of talking to the right people on the other side of the line in the mental health sector to develop innovations that could benefit people? And so I grew that while also growing Exponent at the same time, surprisingly, while also going to business school. (laughs) So it was a little bit of a busy part of my life, but it was really fulfilling to to host those events. What were some of the projects that came out of Mental Health Hackathon? So we did it multiple years. One of the winners that was, I thought, really clever idea was an application that plugs into Amazon to help with compulsive buying disorder. So basically, when someone goes to purchase things on Amazon, it would suggest alternatives or kind of be like, hey, just wait a sec, like, do you actually want to do this? Or this is how much this is, and sort of creating some safeguards. And it's it's so interesting how a lot of these technologies that were invented at these hackathons would essentially be ways to counteract the 
clever technological innovations that the companies themselves were doing to encourage that behavior. So obviously Amazon wants you to buy more stuff, right? And so they've spent a lot of machine learning engineers' time on optimizing where to put buttons on the screen to get you to click and buy as much as possible. And so some of the technologies that we saw were technologies that would actually interrupt that flow and kind of almost like be a counter agent to the work that the company is doing to slow you down and to help you think a little bit more about your intentionality with whether it be buying stuff or dating apps or a variety of technologies that have that addictive property. I love it. So here, I'm going to say this now, just because I say this to anyone who's in tech, who I think might be able to carry the ideas forward. I so want a healthy phone that is fully designed with every app with such a plugin in it, so that it really takes everything that I know about mental health and addiction and happiness and so on, or not even happiness, really just a, just attention and helps me good. You can use the map function, but no, you shouldn't look at your phone at a, at a stoplight. And it would actually turn off, you know, during that time, or maybe it would get rid of certain apps that are a time suck or flag when there's fake news or something like that. Like I want the whole thing to be redesigned. Oh yeah. And it's, it's so funny because so many people in tech also do that or want that. And partially because they see the incentives in the company, which is to optimize for engagement or to optimize for screen time. Or purchases. Exactly. And it's tough. It feels like we're really like consumers or individuals are really battling addictive things on a device that almost everyone has now. It's a tough battle, but I have a lot of those things in my phone as well, where it blocks me from continuing to use certain things or tries to interrupt the addictive triggers for some of these applications. Mm-hmm. So say a little bit more. You you founded Hack Mental Health. There were a lot of projects that came out of that. Many of these devices helped to interrupt the kind of addictive qualities and so on. And and I've participated in some of those hack mental health athons as the the other side of the equation, you know, the psychology side. Tell us about Exponent, which was going on at the same time. Yeah. So my career, it um it, it bounces around a lot, which I think most careers do. But so during I remember distinctly, it was right before COVID, we had our next hackathon plan. It was supposed to be in March of 2020. And it was going to be, I think, our biggest hackathon yet. We were expecting maybe up to a thousand people to attend in UCSF's campus. And it was scheduled to be in March. So we had a lot of it planned already, a lot of speakers booked and a lot of things ready. And unfortunately, COVID happened and we had to shut down the hackathon. You didn't take it online? We considered it, but it was just so rushed for us. It was so chaotic in that period that we were just honestly baffled about what to do and what felt right. And so many people were panicking at that time. So yeah, we we made a call to just kind of, hey, let's like pull it down. We'll send an email to let people know. And then, but yeah, it's 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 still, you know, a little bit of my heart feels bad when I think about it of like, man, all the effort that we put in and that's just kind of out of our control. But so yeah, so since then I interestingly like I was working on two main projects as I was graduating business school. One was the mental health hackathon work, which was always a passionate area for me. And the other was continuing to do this interview coaching business, which had continued to grow over time. And I was starting to find joy in doing some of the interview coaching work where I noticed that a lot of the things that came up were about anxiety, like people's career anxieties, people's career problems, um, people's ability to communicate effectively with another person. And so I fortunately was able to work on that through the pandemic because it was already online and virtual and shifted my focus back into that and trying to make that something that I was really excited to grow and to help flourish 
especially as the tech industry boomed throughout those periods of time. So tell us about a typical typical client. You know, a typical client comes to you. They say, "Oh my gosh, I hate my job. I hate my boss. I'm frustrated. I'm yeah." You know, and then what happens? They don't quite say that, but that is what they're saying. So what they say is, "I need help with interviewing. I need to get this interview." And then there's often sometimes like a tenor to their voice that's a little bit panicking. And so then there's only so much you can do with a coaching session where they're, you know, they're paying you to get interview prep. So you do a mock interview. That's what they want. But it's always interesting because you can tell there's something more. And sometimes in, in these coaching sessions, I ask and it's like, oh, well, like, I really hate my job and I really, really need to get out. Or I just got laid off and I, I really, really need to get this job. Or this is my dream job. Like if I don't get this, I don't know what will happen. Or like once I get this, I'll just be so happy which I'm sure you've heard in a variety of ways in, in life. But I grew Exponent at first very focused on the pain point that I thought was the main pain point, which is people need help with interviewing. And interviewing is a very anxious part of someone's career journey. You have to put yourself out there. You have to potentially get rejected. You have to listen and understand the other person while also showing your skill set. And so we sort of grew the company based on the idea that interviewing is one of these harder things to do in your career. And people hate it. People hate interviewing. And so we we created content. And Wait, hold on. Do you hate interviewing? You know, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, it sounds like you don't hate it. So, all yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, taking I, track. Um, you love it, huh? Yeah, maybe that's why I started this. I think, I don't know why I, I love it, but it's something about the art of the conversation, maybe, or the art of, yeah, being able to connect. It's like a way to connect. It's like, here are my ideas, and here's how I'm structuring them. And do you get it? And following along with them, I think. That is kind of an exciting opportunity. And I hope people who use Exponent are a little inspired by the way the content's filmed where I was in a lot of the early content. And I'm I'm probably looking like geekily happy about interviewing because I'm like, this is so fun. Like <laughs> <laughs> well, good. It's it's but, good that you love your work. Yeah. <laughs> so we we grew the company around interviewing, and I think it still serves that purpose. It still serves that kind of like I'd call it like the surface level pain point there of hey, we know you want this thing. We're gonna help you get this career. And we're going to help you do that by training you on this hard thing. But and part of why I'm taking time off and think what I'm thinking about a little bit more is like, yeah, there were a lot of deeper pain points behind that that I kind of uncovered too of why is it so important to get this next job for some people? Or what is it about a career that like is so stressful for some people? Because there's a lot of anxiety and stress that we were ending up encountering through our work at Exponent. But anyways, yeah, the overall company has grown quite a bit and has been able to serve a lot of different individuals in tech to help them get jobs. So we help them with not only interviews now, but also getting referrals or helping to negotiate or helping to even just a little bit of skill development as well to help people get to the next stage in their career that they want to get to. I think those deeper questions that you just kind of posed are really important in the sense that I have a theory that tech produces not only a unique kind of stress, but also a unique kind of mirage, let's just say, where we have the sense that like, oh, I can strike it rich. I can be, I can really have some innovative idea very young and I can change the world. And some of that is sort of true. Like we have seen some miraculous developments and we are going to need some miraculous developments to deal with some of the problems we have. So I don't want to cut off some of that, you know, dewy-eyed excitement and innovation, but at the same time, it really puts a lot of pressure on people. And I find that coupled with competitiveness and kind of a gold rush mentality 
And sometimes entitlement or narcissism really set people up to arrive at exponent feeling very stressed out and really having a problematic relationship to themselves and their futures and what they're entitled to. And I wonder if that's what you're seeing. Like, Do you think these things create the problems that you're trying to solve? Yeah, I'm very proud of the work Exponent does, but it's almost like there's another need for a pre-exponent exponent or something, you know, like call it a logarithm, like something that doesn't go up as fast. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like the math stuff. I like that. Yeah, yeah. And so because, yeah, like, yes, people are coming to us with a need to get to some stage in their career. That's fine. We can help people with that. But then the real question, yeah, is like, why? why do you need that? And I think you see it reflected even in the apps that are creative, you know, how addictive they are and how fast they grow and all that stuff. But that reflects the overall culture, which is this gold rush mentality. I like how you phrase that of like, and I was a sucker to it too, you know, or I was sucked in like in my early days in my career, I worked at Google thinking it was going to make me some kind of a saint or something. Like I kind of joke, but like at that time it was what, 2014, 2015. Like I was, I truly believe the Kool-Aid and there was so strong Kool-Aid of like, you will change the world. Like this is the new era of the world. And, you know, in this world, there's all this cool stuff that we're going to do. You're going to like completely radically help people. And, you know, there's sort of this like ethos that, and, and yeah, make a lot of money too, you know? And then I go and work at Google and, you know, I love my Google experience, but I spent most of my time optimizing pixels, you know, like small pixels on a screen to help marketing teams advertise their products more effectively. And it was just like the cognitive dissonance of that, I think is what caused me to go on this road trip in the first place of, you know, Hey, like what the, like, how is this actually doing the thing that I was promised? And are we maybe leading people astray and leading people into these kind of ambitious treadmill traps that don't really end? Interesting. So I'm thinking about the contrast. So you and I worked together on one of the the Hack Mental Health hackathons. It was a fabulous experience. It was really innovative and, and exciting for all of the psychologists to participate. And it was truly amazing to watch what young people mostly in tech can create in a weekend. But most of the projects that came out of there are exactly that, like apps that would address particular um, aspects of mental health that are easily controlled. And I'm of the mindset that that what makes us happy and what makes us, you know, have satisfying lives requires a relational, embodied, in real life kind of experience. That's why I'm training to be a psychoanalyst. That's why I practice mostly in person, although I do still do some some telehealth work. What do you think about the importance of embodied, face-to-face, old school meetings and the impact thereof? Yeah, I think it's so important. It's really funny. I was I was just reflecting as you were sharing, like, you know, the, yeah, like when we did the hackathons, there was a lot of these apps that came out. And I remember a lot of them would be like, some of them were interruptions into the daily flow to prevent you from doing more addictive behaviors. So sort of like safeguarding you against this world of tech. And some of them I remember were also about actually connecting with people and, and being able to meet up with people or something like that. I wonder if today when you know, I and I I totally agree with you. I think there's something about the relational aspect and the human to human aspect that is very healing. And I think if I were imagining a hackathon that we ran today, I bet you 100% of it would be AI therapists <laughs> because AI is so trendy right now and the technology is getting a lot better. And I think it poses a big risk to 
people is like, hey, like, do you, the convenience factor is there. The convenience factor of applications are there to interrupt face-to-face interaction. So it's much easier for me to go to my phone and maybe talk to an AI than it is to go outside and talk to a real person from a convenience factor. And I do think this is going to be a big question that comes up soon of when is that appropriate and when is it maybe hurting us? And I, yeah, I, I, it's hard to predict the future, but yeah. And here's the part that scares me is that I don't think that the designers of that are actually concerned about ethics or concerned about including people like psychoanalysts in helping them develop such products and services. So, you know, if there's an AI bot that delivers on-demand therapy, I have no doubt that people will use it. And I have no doubt that people will also suffer sometimes in using it or become uh, kind of dependent on it and maybe get led astray. We've seen lots of cases where people get told all kinds of things. You know, they call up the chat GPT and they say, okay, I'm feeling really sad. I want to die. And the thing basically counsels them to kill themselves. Or, you know, various instances of people, they say, oh, I'm suicidal. And they say, well, why don't you drink a cup of tea? Or why don't you meditate? Like it's, they miss the point. And I think, you know, until it gets, even if it gets much better, it's still creating dependencies on a bot, not on other relationships. It's not building that person's life in a way that can be enjoyed. And so I don't see how it can go unless essentially they're trying to get people off the AI and into the world. That might be helpful. What do you think about the ethics of this and regulatory policy? And there's so much money to be made in AI, so, so much. I don't trust people to not go after that first and wait and see how bad it gets and say it's up to the consumer to decide when these are really powerful tools that can be very captivating and seductive for a very problematic group of people, people who are wanting help. Yeah. In some ways, I, I really love the mental health hackathon work that we did, but I also saw how the industry, it's interesting. It's like, it's both a really needy, like a population that really needs support, but also a population that can be taken advantage of very easily. And so, yes, like already some of the applications that I saw in that space sometimes would be all about underpaying therapists to maximize profit and claim sort of like a put a nice brand around it and things like that. But the I think cool thing get... is, is it's not working and they're all coming to us anyway. <laughs> they're saying yeah. they went to the, you know, better help or whatever, and it didn't do anything. Right, so we're not right. really truly threatened, but it's unfortunate that some people who really do need to get to an in-person therapist have to wait longer because they have to go through the process of thinking that they can get it cheaper and faster and on demand. Yeah. And I, I just feel so much pain for the person who maybe is experiencing a mental health issue and then comes to seek help. And then hopefully people end up finding in-person therapists, but some people may be turned off from it altogether because of the, and I think there's some responsibility that maybe is had in like providing mental health support where you're like, Hey, you need to not be a bad therapist because otherwise people might think all therapists are like that with the ethics stuff. I think it's a really good question. I, I think you're right. The incentives of the companies are not set up in a way that would encourage them to care about ethics. I say that with like a pained heart because there are individuals in the organization that probably care a lot, but the company at large doesn't have that incentive. And so it requires like individual action outside of someone's job description to say something like, hey, this is not good. And then I see two ways to kind of make this work. Or like one, companies having really long-term views. So if a company has a really long-term view, they might say, hey, okay, well, obviously we could 
create these bad AI bots and have them be fake therapists. But then after a year, everyone's going to find out and we're going to have a PR disaster and it's going to be a nightmare. So let's actually not do that because long-term, it'll be bad for the company. So it still kind of ties up to some financial goal and maybe regulatory needs to get involved because there will always be bad actors and bad agents in this space. And there will be people who only want a quick buck in the first year of growing something. And maybe they launch some fancy AI therapist thing that encourages people to drink tea as a way to heal their depression or whatever it might be. And yeah, it's it's tough to watch and it's tough to see that. And just, I think there's also advocacy on the part of the consumer and consumer awareness of these things is important. And also consumer pressure to, you know, Apple and Google both launched like uh, saving time applications on their devices, like to, to help you track time, partially because of consumer pressure. Um, so there is an impact that consumer pressure can have too, but it's, yeah, it, it's, it's such a tough, it's like multiple parties kind of need to come together. And I think an acknowledgement that that's, yeah, you're, we're right. That's not the incentive of the company to care about ethics. So I've heard of, there are some psychoanalysts who, and maybe I should just say for anybody who's listening, who's not aware of what psychoanalysis is all about. I'll give my, you know, half minute description. It's a subset of practitioners who are very highly trained to help our clients move beyond symptom relief, developing meaning. And we do this through dealing with unconscious processes and dynamics. So we spend a great deal of time training to try to understand how to listen for the unconscious motivations and dynamics and how to make sense of them. So people oftentimes come to us when they want to do some really deep work on why do I keep having the same kinds of problems in relationships or why is it that I can't figure out and stop myself from X, Y, Z when I already know that the right behavior is this or I would feel happier if I did whatever. And I think those kinds of conversations could easily be applied to technology use and dynamics that occur between individuals with tech and in groups through social media and so on. So I've often been wondering, what do you think about this idea that psychoanalysts might have a seat at the table when it comes to ethics or when it comes to dynamics around product design? Because we might be able to help the product developers actually think through what's happening unconsciously, both in terms of what we decide to design how we decide to design it, not just the the obvious stuff, but the unconscious stuff, and then what we can predict might happen unconsciously and dynamically once it's being used. What do you think about psychoanalysts being part of these teams or involved yeah. in some way? It's funny. There's a, the dark path is psychoanalysts could be used to help make things more addictive. So hopefully. Absolutely. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully companies have the right incentive when they're working with psychoanalysts. But So we need a psychoanalyst and an ethicist to work together. Yeah. <laughs> or an ethical psychoanalyst. Is what yeah, you're yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully everyone's ethical. But yeah. I, yeah, that's right. If the company has the right incentive, and maybe it's through regulatory pressure, maybe it's through consumer pressure, or maybe it's through long-term thinking, you know, any of the three ways we discussed that companies might actually care about this. And if they staff up and actually investigate this stuff. I do, my hypothesis is there would be huge impact to the company. And I truly believe it would be long-term positive impact to the company's brand and the company's profits too, because it's creating a more sustainable business model. And so, yeah, I, I would be really curious to see how that conversation would go. And in tech already, there's always these different incentives in a room, right? Like the designer wants to design something really exciting. And maybe the engineer knows that it's going to take five extra weeks to build that exciting thing. And so you find compromise and you collaborate to find a solution. 
but it'd be interesting to have another voice in the room and that collaboration and that communication of, well, okay, can we also put in a constraint for this thing or that thing? And having everyone in the room come to a solution that both works for the business, but also works for the individual, I think would be really exciting. Hmm. I can't wait to uh, see if there's a role for us because I think we could add a lot and it might be pretty fun to collaborate with people and see if we can't impact that long-term future. Hmm. Do you think we, and I mean, we not psychoanalysts, but everybody maybe have some responsibilities to other people in a kind of communal way through tech, or do you think we have responsibilities as a society to tech workers to make sure that they are supported in some specific way? Yeah, it's a good question. A lot of the conversation thus far has been sort of me saying, well, companies work that way and maybe they all care. But I, yeah, speaking to the individual, because companies are just consisting of individual humans, I do think we have a responsibility. And I think I'm not an expert on Oppenheimer at all, but obviously having watched the movie this summer and reflecting a lot about it, it's just, it is a timely story to be told right now, I think, in terms of the use of technology. And it's so exciting, like technology in and of itself, like creating new algorithms, creating, like there's so much excitement there. And it is cool. Like we're sort of, edging on the frontier of our knowledge. And that's, I think, to me, a very exciting thing. But just contextualizing it and how it's being used and where it's being used, I really admire and appreciate individuals who vocalize their concerns or vocalize, hey, this might be used this way. And I think there's small actions people can take, even in a tech company to say, hey, like, I'm a little concerned about this. And maybe it doesn't go anywhere. That's fine. But it creates space for other people to share concerns as well that could actually lead to something valuable. I think that's really important. So creating a, an environment where it's safe to voice all of the things, you know, we have a, a a big history in thinking about group dynamics and healthy groups have and support the capacity of each of the individual members to speak for the group, to raise concerns and to feel free enough to to speak anything that they might be thinking so that the group has the benefit of all the minds. And oftentimes in groups that aren't super healthy or aren't functioning really well, people will shut down and not speak for fear of I'll be judged or I won't be liked or I won't be seen as, you know, whatever, towing the line. And I think the whole thinking of the whole group then suffers. No idea is too impoverished to be considered. It might be set aside. It might be discarded, but it's important to be in the room if it's thought. Totally. Yeah. And I I think there are a lot of people that would want to share. I mean, whether it's in the context of building a project or even afterwards and being like, well, that was weird. I did a lot of that stuff. <laughs> and that might be a way to support people in the tech industry is just to create space. And one other thought I have is just because I've been on, I've been in tech, but I also have community outside of tech and explore things outside of tech. One way that I wonder if tech people could be supported, and I know it's sometimes hard for people, but non-judgmental exploration of their role in this. I have definitely been completely roasted by people for being in tech, you know, and saying, and, and I think there's a real tension in San Francisco too of, oh, you're in tech, like you're evil and make a lot of money and whatever kind of thing. And that that kind of creates a distancing feeling for tech employees too. So, you know, just being like, hey, I get it. It's it's confusing and weird. And what did we think about that? Or, you know, how are you feeling about it? And I think dialogue and conversation can be really valuable. So I like the kind of theme of what we're talking about, about creating safe space with both within the company and then outside the company to 
talk about what's going on and what might feel good or not good about the things that we're developing. Mm-hmm. You said something about it's super exciting to create what tech can do and all the innovation and that part. And then you then you started to talk about some of the negatives. I'm thinking about the excitement that we all have, as you referenced Oppenheimer. And I'm thinking about, are there certain things that we should just not do? Are there things on the horizon that people are talking about in AI or biotech or, you know, I saw the human testing of Neuralink and I sort of, my stomach turned mostly because I have tons of ethical concerns about that. Yeah. I mean, I just, I'm wondering what you think. Are there things that we should just say, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be like Icarus. We're just going to sort of set that aside because it's, we could innovate in that direction, but it's too dangerous. In theory, I love the idea that we as a world would not do that. I worry about the there's sort of this and this is an interesting ethical consideration which is like if someone will do it should we also do it but maybe even better i think is that a lot of the technologies that i i would advocate for building alongside some of the technologies that we're building are anti-versions of that technology so what i'm what i mean by that is okay if we're developing ai let's also develop the ability to determine what is ai or not ai Let's make sure that as we're creating technologies, we're not just creating the weapon, we're also creating the defense to the weapon, because without doing so creates a huge problem. But I mean, gosh, like there is a part of me certainly that does want to kind of just be like, hey, like, let me just opt out of this system that is growing. I find it hard to imagine how we as a people would elect not to build a technology or something. And I, I don't know, it'd, it'd be an interesting question how we might approach that. Yeah. I think that's interesting. I mean, I I sort of think that the anti-weapon to all weapons is maybe psychoanalysis. And of course, I'm, Mm. I mean, I'm both Mm. selling, I mean, I'm selling something that I believe deeply in, I suppose, or I'm maybe talking from a personal perspective, but I think we have to develop our minds to be able to keep pace with thinking about and feeling and responding to groups in ways that are open and free so that we can keep pace with what's going to come. Yeah, I dig that because... The world is changing and is chaotic. And if we aren't able to receive that, I mean, and know like there's how to some moral it. development that has to happen and there's some collective communal development. And I'm not sure we can trust all of our news sources anymore. Like there's a lot of things that we have to hurry up and develop so that we can think. And that sounds so silly. Like, of course, we learn to think, but I think we need a higher order of thinking. Mm. This is getting into philosophy that I don't know enough about, but sort of viewing the world as like our mind is our lens to the world. And that's one of the most impactful or high leverage ways to affect my relationship to the world is to influence the lens with which I view the world. So my mind. Yeah. I'm always excited when really high powered tech executives seek out psychoanalysis, because I feel like that's our way to contribute to a large impact in the world. Because if the minds of these folks are honed and developed and they can think freely, they can feel, they can participate, then I'm I somehow rest a little bit easier knowing that what they're going to do might have some ethical or social influence or or guidance or support or something. Huh. That's a really neat vision. Like I wonder what would Oppenheimer have done if he had psychoanalysis, you know? Like... <laughs> I don't know. That's a great idea. Great, <laughs> great thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I ask everyone this question, what do you think is going to happen in the next 10 years relative to tech? Huh, great question. Well, I think AI is now around to stay. <laughs> we are going to see a huge proliferation of the usage of the AI in, in a variety of ways, probably for service-related functions like customer support or 
which I hate because it's not perfect yet. <laughs> yeah, right? it's, it's infuriating. Uh, customer support has always been infuriating, but now it's even more infuriating because now you're not even talking to a human. <laughs> right, right. Or if there's if there's a bug, then it's just like super infuriating because there's nowhere to go. Yeah, you're just trapped. Yeah, yeah. it is horrible. But in the next 10 years, I, I'd imagine there it also maybe may start to bleed into other roles and probably at first like aiding and embedded in workflows. So for writers being able to help write more effectively and things like that. But honestly, I, I would say that's one of the biggest technological innovations coming around right now that, that will certainly shape our industry. And I could not tell you that I could predict the next 10 years because I couldn't have predicted the last 10 years at all. So I'm really curious to see where it goes. I think this is a very pivotal time to have conversations like this where we're able to talk and influence the trajectory of things as they grow. And I think, yeah, and there is a part of me that's also really excited too. There's there's exciting parts of it as well. But candidly, yeah, a little bit more concerned with just the pace at which things are going. Yeah, it is super rapid. So is there anything else you'd like to add about anything we've said today or even about things we haven't discussed today? I don't have anything specific to add other than just it's a confusing world. <laughs> it's always been, I guess, a confusing world, but it feels even more confusing now. And yeah, I, I really do think there's a role that everyone has in shaping the future, whether as a consumer or a business person or as a psychoanalyst or whatever it may be. And so just conscious and intentional involvement of one's role in the world and how it gets shaped. Ah, but that leaves out the unconscious and that's where we get to contribute, I suppose. <laughs> I guess, yeah, we all need psychoanalysts for that, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what we get to contribute because I think we can yeah. only be conscious so far. That's true, yeah. <laughs> well, good. I know you're currently planning on taking a sabbatical from Exponent to do nothing but meditation retreats and dog sitting in nature, which sounds wonderful. How long are you going to do that for? At least through the end of the year. But yeah, I'm, I'm sort of taking some incubation time and some time to nurture myself a little bit to figure out, yeah, where where do I want to make impact now? What would that look like in the next few years? So sounds wonderful. Well, great. Well, I wish you all the best during that time. It sounds sounds fabulous. We've been speaking with Stephen Cognetta. You can find him at www.steven with a P-H-E-N Cognetta, C-O-G-N-E-T-T-A.com. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. And thank you all for listening to the beginning of the second season to Technology in the Mind. Next, we'll be talking with Dr. Paul Slavik, a psychologist and decision scientist in judgment and risk. He studied risk perception with an emphasis on the importance of feelings. He's published over 500 papers and received numerous awards and distinctions, including being elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 2016. Please join us at Technology in the Mind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Technology in the Mind was funded in part by a grant provided by the American Psychoanalytic Foundation on behalf of the American Psychoanalytic Association. Thank you for listening to this episode of Technology in the Mind. If you would like to learn more about psychoanalysis and technology, please visit the Center for Psychoanalysis and Technology at www.centerforpsychoanalysisandtech.com. For additional episodes of Technology in the Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts.